Let's pray before we open the word. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for the way we've been blessed so far in the service already. Um, what a joy to be worshiping you through songs. And, and Father, I pray that now as we open up scripture, may your spirit be here. May uh, you be present with us and may each of us get a lesson that we can take into our weeks this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night I was talking to my dad on the phone and um, I, w- I got him to share with me a story that I've heard a number of times growing up because um, I wanted to get the details right for you this morning. And so ba- my dad, when he was around about 15 years old, was in Tasmania. And they had a little house which overlooked um, uh, Hobart and overlooked Mount Wellington and there was a Tasman Bridge that went over in front of them. And and at night time, all the lights on that bridge would, would, would light up and, you, and it would look really, really nice view out the front of their place. And on this particular night, it was, it was, it was dark, it was drizzly, and they were just, there was my dad and a couple of his brothers were in the place where they were staying, where they were living. And they suddenly heard this loud rumbling sound. And dad described it as being sort of like an a aeroplane, like aeroplane crash or a or something like that, but it got louder and louder and louder. And my dad's brother was out at the, wind, at the window, and he said, the bridge is falling down. And my dad's like, come on, the bridge isn't falling down. And so he went up and looked out the window, and sure enough, the Tasman Bridge, and if any of you have been down there, you might have heard this story before, um, the Tasman Bridge they saw falling down in front of them, and all the lights that were on the bridge were still shining as they fell down into the water, and they looked out there in just disbelief at what they were witnessing. And as they continued looking, they saw these, these car lights coming towards them, and they just came, and then they just went off the end of the bridge and into the water. And then the next car came, and off the end, and these cars just kept coming and coming and coming, driving off the edge of this bridge, and I'll show you a photo on the screen. Um, this is what they saw, this is taken the next day, and these cars just kept driving over and over and over. And so they raced outside and they got down and what actually happened was a boat, uh, the captain of this boat was, was drunk at the time and in, instead of going through the, between the pillars, he ro- drove his boat straight into one of those pillars, knocked it down, the bridge came down, fell on the boat and all the concrete and stuff sank the boat beneath it and so there's all these people in the water and they, dad was down there with, with other people down there with torches and helping people get out and then... They went up to the road and they were flashing the light around saying, stop, 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 don't drive to the bridge, it's, 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 it's um, fallen down. Many people didn't believe them, they just kept driving past, but by that time I think there was a bit of a road blockage happening. Um, but yeah, they saw these cars just driving along and then suddenly dropping off the end. And a couple, this amazing photo which I want to sh- show you here. Here's two cars that were driving along, saw it at the last second slammed on the brakes, and you can see what happened. And that's, those cars were just hanging there. One of them, actually, Dad was saying that um, only had one arm, and so he had to climb out of this car, dangling off the edge of this bridge, with only one arm. So, very terrifying situation. And the reason I share with you this today, I want you just to be thinking in your mind of, of, of the unawareness that these people had as they drove along, headed straight for this... Um, this huge fall in their car that they had no idea. If I go back to this picture, they were driving along, and because it was near the top, they wouldn't have seen it until suddenly they fell down to to their deaths 
beneath, completely unaware. They must have felt like we've driven this bridge so many times before, surely we are safe. Surely we have nothing to worry about, but little did they know that they were completely unaware of the danger that lay before them. The message, I've titled the message today, Unaware. And we're going to be unpacking Matthew chapter 7. For those who are new, we are journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're up to chapter 7. And as, as I sat down and I started reading through this, this chapter this week and the week before, I realized that this is a heavy chapter. This is, you might call this a chapter of warning. And God is, and Jesus is, is as he's there on top of the mount, as he's preaching this sermon, he's giving some truths that are hard-hitting truths, but the reason he's giving these is because he loves us so much. I want you to imagine that you wake up one morning and you go down, this, down the road and you see this. You see your neighbor's house on fire. Now, imagine that you know that, that the neighbor, your neighbor is probably in there, probably still asleep. What would be the loving thing to do in this situation? Would you walk up to that front door and go, just gently knock and say, hello, is there anyone in there? Your house is on fire. Would that be the loving thing to do? Or would the loving thing be to grab a rock and maybe throw it through the window and bash down that door and yell at the top of your lungs, the house is on fire, get out, get to safety. The most loving thing to do would be to give that that strong warning because the people inside are completely unaware of the danger that lies before them. And here in in chapter 7, we see Jesus doing that. In his love, he looks out upon these people and he realizes that many of them are completely unaware of the spiritual condition that they're in and, and the dangers that lie ahead, that Jesus is giving some very strong messages of warning because he loves us and he wants us to be saved. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And what we are going to undo, we're going to unpack five ways that Jesus shares with us in which we can be unaware of our spiritual dangers. Five ways that we can be like those people in those cars driving towards that drop-off to their death. Five ways that we can be completely unaware of the danger, the spiritual danger that we are in. And the first one is this. Being unaware of our own faults because we are focused on the faults of others. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 4 says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you, you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Pretty humorous little illustration Jesus uses here. He's saying, imagine you see someone go up to a friend, and while they're going up to him, they have this, I sort of picture Jesus sharing this, holding this, seeing this big log next to him, just picking it up and sort of shoving it in his eye. And you imagine this person with this big log, like, right up against their eye, and they go up to their friend and say, Oh, excuse me, did you know that there's a little speck in your eye? I'd really like to help you with that speck. Here, help me, let me take that out for you. Now, 
Isn't that ridiculous? But Jesus is saying that often we find ourselves in the exact same situation. Unaware, while we are trying to help others, unaware of the situation and the faults and the weaknesses that we possess ourselves. Now, Jesus here is not condemning all types of judging. Okay, Sometimes we think that the Bible is completely against every sort of judging. But when you go down to verse 15 in chapter 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do you think Jesus, by saying that, is, is suggesting that we should be discerning and be able to, in t- at times, be able to make an assessment of the people around us? Surely that's what he's saying. Now, the word judge that we find there in, chap- in verse 1 where he says, judge not, there's a whole range of different shades of meaning that that word can have. It can mean to discern, it can mean to be judgmental, it can mean to judge in a sort of courtroom sort of style setting. So we need to look at the context to see what sort of judging that is referring to. And it's quite clear from the illustration that Jesus uses that it's the judgmental sort of attitude that he's, that he's, that he's speaking against. It's when someone is, is, a, is a fault finder, they're, they're critical, and they're so quick and swift to point out the faults in others, and yet are, are unaware, or at least ignoring, those faults that they have themselves. An example of this we find in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus who's about to heal someone on the Sabbath. And it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. Now, what are the Pharisees, or the people who are here, what are they doing? It says they watched him. Why are they watching him? They're there to see if they can catch him in a moment of weakness, in a moment where he does something wrong, so when they see it, they can jump on him and say, you did this wrong. Okay, they're watching. They're watching. How can we catch Jesus? How can we find him in a state of weakness so that we can pounce upon that? It goes on to say, Jesus, completely aware of what they're doing, goes on to say, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger. Grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, when you look closely at this, both Jesus and the Pharisees are both engaged in an activity here on the Sabbath day. Jesus' activity is, is doing things in order to bring life, to bring restoration, to bring healing, whereas the Pharisees, they're doing just as probably more work than Jesus, having a little gathering in order to destroy Jesus, in order to kill him. Jesus is arranging, their, is arranging a healing while they're arranging a, a murder. But yet, they point at Jesus and they say, they're watching him, look what you're doing on the Sabbath unaware that they have a giant log in their own eye. And Jesus here is, is saying that, that we need to be so much more gentle with people, understanding that we are weak sinners in need of a Savior, just like, just like they are. Now, 
a statement that I found in the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, which was written by Ellen White. She just, in describing this scene, she says, His words describe one who is swift to discern a defect in others. When he thinks he, is def- when he, thinks he has detected a flaw in the character or the life, he is exceedingly zealous to try to point it out. So here she's pointing out that Jesus is referring to someone who's swift to find the mistake. Then she says, But Jesus declares that the very trait of character developed in doing this unchristlike work is in comparison with the fault criticized as a beam in proportion to a moat. Not only is Jesus is, is not only is this communicating that Jesus communicating that we shouldn't point out faults in people because we have bigger faults ourselves, but he's saying the very attitude of being a fault finder, of of being swift to find the mistakes of others, he says that attitude, that unchristlike attitude, is the log in the eye. Okay, so what we see, um, before I go to that, what we see is this attitude that Jesus is, is, is pointing out. So what's the solution? Jesus says in, in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I came across recently a story attributed to, the, to Gandhi, who's a very um, respected person in India. When you go there, you see his statue all over the place. Um, there was a, the story goes, there was a woman who um, went to Gandhi and brought her son to him. And the problem was, this son was eating too much sugar. And the mother knew that this was bad for his health, and so she'd been disciplining him and doing all sorts of things to try and convince her son to stop eating sugar. So she thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take my son to Gandhi, who's a bit of a hero of his, and get him to give that same message to the boy. So she grabs the son and goes off to Gandhi and, and says, my boy eats too much sugar and it's, it's damaging his health. Can you please tell him to stop eating sugar? And Gandhi said, come back in two weeks' time. And the, the woman was a bit confused. Why didn't he just um, listen to her, her request? So she goes away. Two weeks later, she comes back and goes, all right, Gandhi, I'm here for you to tell my boy to stop um, eating sugar. And Gandhi said, boy, it's not good for your health. You need to stop eating sugar. And the boy said, okay. And the woman was confused and said, why did you make me go away for two weeks and then come back before you tell my boy this? And Gandhi said, well, two weeks ago, I was still eating too much sugar. (laughs) And so Gandhi saw this as a... He realized that if he was going to have any sort of sense of authority or, or to instruct this, this boy, he had to actually live first the thing that he was going to communicate to him. And so, so Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so the solution is, and I'd like to suggest, to view the faults you see in others not as opportunities to condemn, but as opportunities for self-examination. When you see that fault in someone, take that as an opportunity to assess yourself and say, am I falling short in this area of my life? Now, what's a practical way that this can apply? When you come to church, which, and then you go home and you discuss how the church service went, which list is bigger? 
the list of faults you find with the service or the list of faults the service finds with you? You understand what, what it's saying? You get home, how was church? Well, the preacher spoke a little bit too long and the kids next to me were a bit loud and, and, and on the list might go. But what if you got home and how was the sermon? Well, I really felt convicted that this area of my life is not living up to God's standard for me. Where's the focus? The focus is on your own journey with Jesus. And this is what Jesus is communicating with us. Okay, way number two. Jesus, um, second way we can be unaware. Unaware that we are on a path leading to destruction because everyone else is also on it. Let's read. We're going to go down to chapter 7, verse uh, 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What's Jesus communicating here? I love... Uh, observing the way that, that crowds interact, with how sort of that crowd mentality where everyone sort of follows what everyone else does. Last year, I was in South Korea, and we went to uh, Mount uh, Bukhan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a place in Seoul in South Korea. And we went on this big uh, hike up to the top of this mountain. And afterwards, we're walking back down, and I saw this cool little, can you see it? It's a bit hard to see there. It's like this little rock formation that juts up off the side of this mountain, and it, it doesn't look overly safe, but I saw it and I thought, you know what, that looks like a good place for a picture. So I sort of like made my way out to there and sort of climbed up to the side, and no one else was going up to it that I saw before this, and I got there and I was sort of nervous, hoping this rock wouldn't just fall off into the valley, and, and my friend Lachlan took this photo, we got the snap, I came back, and then the thing that happened afterwards I noticed that the next person that came down saw us taking the photo, and they just thought that's what happened. And so they went out there, and their friend took the photo, and then before we, I knew it, there was almost like a bit of a lineup of people ready to go out and, and to take this photo on this little scary rock that was sort of jutting out the side of the mountain. And it was interesting to observe how they assumed that it was safe and assumed that it was the, the thing that they should be doing because everyone else was doing it before them. But it's much, much harder to go against the crowd, isn't it? Um, I've been on a few plane rides recently, and I remember one of them, I had this little suitcase, and I got out of my seat, ready to get off the plane, I started walking along, and I got about four steps, and I thought, my suitcase. Now, what happens at that point? You look around, and all of the crowd is going in the one direction, and you're going to basically have to wait till everyone gets through before you go back. And you sort of wait for a gap, and then you jump up, and then go to the seat, and move your way up. It's so much harder going against the grain. But what Jesus is communicating to us is that the path that leads to life is the narrow path. The path that leads to life is the one that few people are on, and it's often the harder path. It's one thing to follow God when everyone else around you is, is doing the same thing. But when you're in a situation where it's the complete opposite... It's so much harder. When I went to high school, I went to a big public high school. There was a, probably over a thousand um, people there, and very few of the, my friends held the same values that I did. And it's amazing how, in that situation, suddenly I realized that things like keeping the Sabbath, things like having 
a diet that might be a little bit different to other people, um, and all those little things that, that put us maybe a little bit out of step with the rest of the world suddenly made it that much harder to live out the Christian experience. But the danger is, and as it's got here, that um, we, can, we can be unaware that we are on a path leading to destruction because everyone else is on it. The, rest, the majority of the world is leading in a path that is away from what God wants from us. And Jesus says that you're is basically communicating that the natural instinct is to feel safe because we are in line with everyone else, but the reality is often quite the opposite. So to be the solution is to remember that Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And when we realize that that is actually the way to life, it will give us confidence, encourage us when times are much tougher. Point number three, being unaware that we are following a false teacher because they look like the real deal. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 says, we read this one earlier, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Bit of a scary verse, isn't it? I want to share with you two emails that I received in probably a space of the last week. The first one was this. Now, any email that begins with congratulations, you know it's going to be a good email. And so I got this email and it said, congratulations, you are among the four lucky winners. How exciting. I am gold mining company, full stop. The grammar is a little bit bad here. Canada Burkina Faso email users that won jackpot of 500,000 USD, which... In case you missed that, it says they wrote it out in full, 500,000 United States dollars. And then it goes on, your email address are among the four lucky winners. How exciting. Another email I got, this one's even better, the one, you're going to be amazed, you're going to wish you got this email that I got yesterday. Dear friend, I want to transfer US 20.5 million to your bank account. The fund belonging to your deceased customer who died with his entire family in Iraq war, leaving nobody for the claim, and as such, I decided to contact you to enable us to claim the fund. How convenient. Your share is 40%, while 60% is for me. Now, maybe I should negotiate that, I'm not sure. But in case I was starting to feel like it's a bit dodgy, he assures me, this transaction is 100% (laughs) risky-free. And so I have full confidence that I am going to be a millionaire come next Sabbath. It's kind of what um, Carolyn was sharing with us in the children's story. The world is out to deceive us and to scam us. And Jesus is communicating that Satan is the, the real scammer. Satan is the one who's doing that exact same thing, only Satan's scams and deceptions are more sophisticated, more cunning, and certainly more convincing than what we see, what we see here. And they can be prophets, they could be teachers, they could be leaders people that are leading you astray, and as a result, you can think that you're following the path of God, but be completely unaware that you are in a pathway to um, destruction. Acts chapter 11, uh, 17, verse 11, you might remember this from our Acts series, shows us a 
a group of believers who have the attitude that I believe Jesus wants us to have. Um, Paul had just been ministering in Thessalonica, and he came to Berea. And when he got to Berea, the Bereans were described as having a specific characteristic. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and this is why. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Here we see the characteristics that we need to have. Firstly, they're eager to learn, but secondly, they're eager to examine, eager to test. And everything they heard from, the, from Paul, they would go home and they would open their, script, their Bibles up and they would test every single thing that they heard. Now, just because I'm saying something at the front or just because any pastor says something at the front doesn't mean that it's right, okay? We like to think it does sometimes. But the reality is you're not safe if you're putting your trust in any leader or um, person if it's not in line with what God is, is sharing. And, and Jesus is communicating that Satan is going to elevate people into positions of, of leadership and positions of instructions when really they're following another uh, spirit. Now, one way to test someone would be to look at their resume. Is this person qualified to be up the front? Have they got a degree or a PhD? What was their position before this? What has been, um, how eloquent are they? Am I, do I have a good feeling about this, this person who's speaking up the front? Jesus uses none of those uh, things as a test to test the genuineness of someone who's communicating the gospel to you. So what is the test that Jesus gives us? Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 to 17 gives us the answer. It says, Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. Jesus says, You will know the quality on the trueness of a teacher by the fruits of their life and their ministry. Well, what is that fruit? At least one place has to be the fruits of the Spirit, which we see in Galatians 5.22, and it communicates, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need to be discerning. We need to not feel secure simply because we're following the instruction of some, that someone is giving us. But as Jesus communicates to us, instead of following blindly, we need to use the fruit test and, as the Bereans did, the scripture test so that we are not caught into a scam that the devil has set uh, for us. Okay, we're getting through these. Two more. Uh, number four, unaware that we lack a relationship with Jesus because we are busy working for him. Now, the next passage is, one of the, is a very sort of sad passage that Jesus shares with us because it communicates people who thought that they were going to make it into the kingdom of God. When Jesus came back, they thought that they would be saved, and yet they found out that they were found wanting. Verse 21 says, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a terrifying verse. To think that some people could spend their whole life sincerely working for God, doing all these great things for God, doing miracles for God, speaking for God, doing service for God, only to get to the end and have God say, depart from me. What, what has gone wrong here? What is the solution to avoid this kind of a situation? There's two things that Jesus says that these people are lacking. The first one, found in verse 21, says this, uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here we have a person who is submissive. They're not charging ahead of God, but they're surrendered to God, and they're ready to follow Him wherever He, he leads. But the more, probably even more um, informative statement is right at the end where Jesus says to this person, um, verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Uh, down to verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. What's missing from this person's experience? The knowledge of God, that relational knowledge of God, that personal saving relationship is what's missing in this, this life. And it reminds me of a story that you're probably familiar of, familiar with, and I want you to jump across with me, this one's not on the screen, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, we see Jesus doing a little home uh, visit in this in this verse, he comes to the house of Mary and Martha. It says, verse 38, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary, Jesus says. Martha did so many good things. But Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and was investing in that relationship with Jesus. Now, I wonder if this attitude of Martha's, fully grown and fully developed, could result in what we read in Matthew chapter 7 where God could say, yes, she said, but I invited you into my house, but I got the food prepared for you, I cleaned the house, I did all these things for you, God. And Jesus said, but I never knew you. Unaware completely of the reality of the situation that they are lacking, the one thing that is necessary, and that is a relationship with Jesus. So what's the solution for point Number three, prioritize personal time with Jesus and let your actions flow out of that. Prioritize that time when you spend in just you and Jesus, just like Jesus did. In verse 
In Luke 5, verse 15, Jesus is surrounded by people who are desperate to come to him and desperate to, um, to be healed by him. So many good works for Jesus to do. And it says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Was there ever a person who had more pressures than Jesus? More people wanting his attention, more good works that could be done. And yet Jesus knew that one thing was necessary, and he'd put all of that aside and spend time with his Father in heaven. I told you it's a bit of a heavy chapter, but we're last, the last one, we're almost through it. Point number five, unaware that we will crumble during tough times because we are strong when life is easy. Chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus finishes the Sermon of the Mount after communicating all these things. This is like his, his final parable that's going to tie it all together. And he says, Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and, the, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When I read this story, a picture comes to my mind that I saw on the news a few couple of months ago. You might have seen it. Did anyone see this picture? Okay, we had those floods that came through Kingscliff, and then got worse as it just beated down through New South Wales and, and Victoria, and then down to Tasmania. This one is in the northern beaches of Sydney, and someone, as a result of the storms, came out and found that their prized swimming pool and their little luxurious mansion on the beach had fallen down into, over the cliff and down into the bank. Um, and I can imagine this person, when they bought the house, they must have thought that they had just had pure gold. This was their dream house, and this is what they'd been saving for, this has been working for, and before they had this storm, it would have been a beautiful house. But when times get tough, when the, 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 the high tide is met with the, the floods and the, and the waves, and it all comes together, and before she knows it, this incredible erosion has taken place underneath, and a house is crumbled. And Jesus is using, jumping upon this image to describe two different uh, experiences, and, and to describe a person that, that feels like their life is, is solid, feels like their life is secure, feels like their life is, 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 is going to last the distance, but when trials come, when temptations come their way, they fall off the cliff just like this swimming pool does. What's the difference? What's the solution? And it's quite clear in here. Jesus says in verse 24, describing the first person, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. That's the difference. Both of them are hearing the words of God, but one is applying those, those things that they're hearing, and the other one is not applying them. And so the solution is solid foundations are built by applying Scripture, not by studying it alone. The life that day by day is applying Scripture by Scripture by Scripture, and not just reading it, applying it to life, is the one that's going to stand when temptation comes your way. An evaluative question for us is this, how does the quantity of time spent studying the Bible 
How does your, the quantity of your time spent studying the Bible compare with the, your time spent applying it? This is a challenge for me. I've spent a lot of time getting ready Bible studies and getting ready sermons and, and reading Scripture, but how much of that time am I actually saying, now, how am I personally putting this into practice? Now, with this, it makes me think that we've gone through lots of different lessons today, but we could walk out today and have heard a really good sermon, and it could mean absolutely nothing. And so as we go through and we go just quickly review these five stages, I want you to be thinking, which one of these points out something in my life? Which one of these is revealing something that I need to apply this week? Which of these is my weekly challenge to take with me today? So number one was, people can be unaware that they are on a path leading to destruction because everyone else, sorry, the first one was, unaware of our own faults because we are focused on the faults of others. Maybe your challenge is that you need to view the faults you see in others as opportunities for self-examination. Number two, unaware that we are on a path leading to destruction because everyone else is on it. Maybe your challenge is to realize that that's what Jesus said it was going to be like. Take courage, draw strength from him, and push on, even though there's not many, even though it's like going backwards in the crowd on an aeroplane. Number three, unaware that we are following a false teacher because they look like the real deal. How much are we trusting the people that are sharing with us? How much are we evaluating the things that they are sharing? Maybe you need to do some fruit tests and some scripture tests with um, the, whether it's the books you're reading, the, the sermons you're listening to, etc. Number, f- number four, unaware that we lack a relationship with Jesus because we are busy working for him. Are you spending that time each and every day with Jesus? Or are you so busy, like Martha, doing works for God instead of spending time with him? And number five, unaware that we will crumble during tough times because we are strong when life is easy. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Things are going well for you, but are you step day by day, not only studying, but also applying scripture to your life? In the beginning, I told you a story about the Tasman Bridge and these people that were going along and completely unaware that they were in danger. And it makes, and after reading these things, and maybe the question you're asking, can we ever be sure? Can we ever be sure of our salvation? Because there's lots of reasons why we can't be sure. We can't be sure because, and these are some reasons people might think, I'm sure, based off what we've looked at, I'm sure I will be saved because I have less faults than those around me. I'm sure I will be saved because my beliefs and actions align with the majority. I'm sure I will be saved because I have carefully followed all that I was instructed. I'm sure that I was saved because I am doing amazing things for God. Or I'm sure that I am saved because I am currently standing strong for Jesus. None of those reasons are reasons that you can be sure that you will be saved. So what is the reason? Can we be sure? One of my favorite verses in Scripture is 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, and it says this. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. He goes on to say, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God 
so that you may think that you have eternal life. Is that what it says? So that you may know that you have eternal life. We can be 100% confident and assured that we, when Jesus comes back and we see the angels in heaven, that we will be welcomed into the kingdom. But what is the reason for our sureness? I remind you what Jesus said to, Ma- to Martha. He said, But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The one thing that is necessary is having Jesus, having that saving relationship with Jesus. If you have Jesus, it says in First John, you have life. It's that simple. Maybe to finish up, I wasn't planning on showing this verse, but um, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says this. Jesus here is talking to, a, to the believers in a church called Laodicea, and these people are people who once were strong for Jesus, and these are people who, are, who confess. They say, Lord, Lord, these are people who, I'm sure, believe that they are going to be saved. But the problem that they have is that Jesus is outside their door. And Jesus gives this through the, the prophet John says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with, eat with him and he with me. There is nothing more that Jesus wants than to be present in our life to be in a relationship with us. And he's just there knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And maybe Jesus is knocking on your door today. And if you feel that Jesus is knocking on your door, during the prayer, and as we begin to pray, I just want you to raise your hand to say, Jesus, I want you to come into the door of my life. Because if you have Jesus, you have life. And it's that simple. Father in heaven, this is a strong message today that we've heard. It is a, uh, in some ways, maybe a scary message for some people, Lord. That maybe some of the things that we've been trusting in don't, aren't really things that we can be trusting in. Maybe there's some people here who think that they are saved, Lord, and think that they will be ready for your kingdom when it, when it is fully established. And yet they're unaware that they are like a car going over the bridge, Father. And Father, we hear that you are knocking at our doors today. And Father, we raise our hands and we say, Lord, we want to accept you into our life. That's all we need to do, Lord. And we invite you in. We want to be in a relationship with you. We want to have you in our life. We want to be a person who can say, I don't know anything else, but I know that I have Jesus. As Paul said, he considered everything else rubbish apart as a, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And so those who would like Jesus in the door of their life, would like Jesus as their companion and friend, I invite you to raise your hand now. Everyone's eyes are closed. Father, you see these hands raised. We pray that you'll be present in our life. And Father, as we go into this week, may we apply the things that we've learned. May we spend time with you each day, Lord. And may we leave with the assurance, Lord, that we are truly saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. 
I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.